All right, well, good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. This is a lot of people. It's a little bit unnerving, but this is awesome. So uh, bear with me if I'm a little scatterbrained. Uh, this, is, uh, this is exciting. I, I told a few people I would do this every single week if people would actually listen to it every single week. Um, but I hope, my prayer is that something that I'm able to present to you changes you in some way. Not because I've said it, not because of what it is, but because of the God that I serve. Um, I know that Christ is who he says he is. He has changed my life, uh, tra- completely transformed it, and is doing, is doing so every day, conforming me more into the image of Christ. And everything that I find uh, in this world points me back to him. It points me back to the love that he has, the power that he has, the lordship and the love that he has shown me and shown each and every one of us. Uh, so my prayer is that will be the focus and that uh, through something that, uh, something that I say, something that we say here, uh, that he will be honored, he will be magnified, and that you will leave different than when you came in. Again, not because of anything I said, but because of how great he is. So... If you have on your table one of these little sheets, go ahead and grab it, flip it over. I've just got a couple of blanks here, just from some tidbits uh, that we will, we will get to uh, as we go through it. Just help keep your thoughts straight and help keep me straight, mainly. Uh, I have been asked to come and speak about science and faith, science and religion, uh, science and Christianity. Uh, how are these two things, how are they together? How do they work? Because both of them exist in our world. Uh, We live in a very modern society. Uh, We live in one that is governed by science, essentially. You look around every day. uh, You see the cell phones in your pocket. Those cell phones have more computing power than the entirety of NASA's databanks whenever they launched men to the moon. Your cell phone is many, many times more powerful than their entire supercomputers they had chugging away at simulations to try to figure out, is this even possible? Even... uh, but 10 years ago, the concept of having unlimited data at 4G, you know, that, that, it was a, a mind-blowing thing that you could be on the internet anywhere you wanted to be. We live in a very science, uh, science-focused age. And some people see that as a bad thing. Um, I don't, personally. I'm a little biased because I am a scientist. But uh, I think that there are many, many things that science has given us, and we would be... Uh, it would be unwise of us to simply shun it and turn away, turn aside anything that science has to offer simply because it might be a little difficult to talk about or a little difficult to explain. So this debate has been going on for a very, very long time. When I say long time, I mean the entirety of human civilization, this debate has been going on. Science and religion, science and faith, the natural versus the supernatural. Uh, Science, and this, you can look at your first blank right here. Well, you know what? I, I don't want to just talk at you guys. What would you define science as? Just somebody. What, what, what is science? Have you ever thought about that? Okay. Science, in, I'd say, definitely involves exploration. Right. You want to go, you want to see new things. You want to find new things. Right. What else? What is science? What does it involve, maybe? Well, it's, not, it's not hard, right? It's the study of how things work. Okay, the study of how things work. So you see something happening and you want to know what's making that happen. 
Right, you want to understand more about this. I see the sun rising and setting in the sky. Why, what is this ball that's moving around that gives me warmth and gives me light? What is, why, why is it moving? You know, we want to understand how these things work. I say that's exactly right. What else? All right, science this being the study of the natural world. I would, uh, I would agree, definitely. Science is focused primarily, and well, not even primarily, exclusively on the natural world. So this leads to our first blank right here. Science involves reason, empiricism, and evidence. Science involves reason, empiricism, and evidence. So reason, that's pretty straightforward, right? Uh, Empiricism, it's a crazy word. (laughs) E-M-P-I-R-I-C-I-S-M. I had to look that one up. That's a Webster's Dictionary thing. All right. Reason, that's pretty straightforward, right? You want to think. You, want, you don't just want to sit around like a knot on a log. You want to figure things out. That curiosity that drives all of humanity. The curiosity that may have brought some of you here today. The curiosity that lets you uh, get, roll out of bed every morning to get, to get a, a degree, to go do something in, in, with your life, to go to build maybe, to, to heal, uh, to explore, you know, these, to, to create perhaps. Uh, it's this reason this, and this curiosity that drives you, and that's a crux of what science is. Uh, empiricism, that's simply looking at what is around you. What can you see? What can you feel? What can you touch, test? What is it that you can gather with your senses in the world? Okay, what can you gather with your natural senses? This feels like this. It looks like this. These two things, when you put them together, this pops out. You know, that, that sort of testing you can think of it as. And then finally, evidence. Okay, evidence. It's, what, it's, it's something in front of you that leads to an answer. It leads to an explanation. Science is all about explaining what's going on, as was already mentioned. That's exactly right. So science involves reason, empiricism, and evidence. Now, on the, I'll say it, on the flip side, you have religion. Now, religion, what is that? A system of beliefs, okay? Yes, I, I agree. Yes, there are many systems of beliefs that exist around the world. All of them are considered religions. Very good. What else? What defines a religion? Come on, guys. Hmm, okay. So it's, it's, it, it seems like there's a connotation of there being something more. Right. There's something that we just can't quite, can't get quite get our minds around. So it's, right. So, okay, okay, right. So the issues of good, evil, right, wrong, good. Uh, that's where a religion would come into play to help explaining those things you're saying, right? Okay, yeah. Bingo, you hit one of the key words. Faith. Religion, a key part of every religion is faith. And this leads to this next part. Religion adds faith, philosophy, and metaphysics. <laughs> I know. I saw you laughing back there. Religion adds faith, philosophy, and metaphysics. Okay. So faith, 
you, you split all that perfectly. Believing in something that you can't quite see, you can't quite get around, you can't go touch it, you can't see it, smell it, hear it, taste it, but yet you hope that it's there. You, you base your life or parts of your life around this thing that you can't quite explain or you can't quite experience or interact with in this physical, tactile, empirical sense. Philosophy is a big part of religion. Did you know that? Philosophy. Philosophy is just it's thinking, about, uh, thinking about the world in terms of, this, you mentioned morality. Morality arguments, they're a very big part of philosophy. Um, asking, does God exist? Is there anything, well, what is the purpose of life? These are, these are philosophical questions um, if you look at them. And metaphysics, that's a, that's, all that is is a big fancy word for uh, things outside the natural world. Okay, things, for example, spiritual, uh, your soul, you hear. You know, a soul, it's a metaphysical thing. It's a metaphysical concept. Um, uh, something being uh, supernatural, set apart, paranormal even, you can go around that route. That's, that's a metaphysical concept. So science focuses on the natural world. I think you summed up really good, uh, Kyle, when you said that. Fo- uh, science is exclusively interested in the natural world. Religion and faith... They fold in, they add, notice I said didn't say include, they add these other dimensions. Now, how have these two behaved over the course of human history? The answer may surprise you because many people believe today that the two are diametrically opposed, that faith and science are have, have, and all, have been and always will be at odds with each other, fighting for dominance over the culture of the world. Which one explains everything? Do we need science or do we need religion? Is science better than religion? Is religion better than science? Should one be listened to over the other? You've, hear, you've probably heard this before, right? You've heard that uh, from many, many TV personalities even. Uh, Bill Nye the Science Guy is a very popular one that I know of. And man, I, I, love, I love Bill Nye the Science Guy for what he did uh, for all those shows that pretty much got me interested in science uh, when I was younger. Uh, but he will propose that religion is useless. Faith is pointless, essentially. The natural world is all there is and all there ever will be, and it is all we should concern ourselves with. Everything else is nothing. That's not how it always was, though. If you take a look at the next blank there, in ye olden times, when I say ye olden times, I mean ye olden times, like really, really long time ago, before the Dark Ages, before the Middle Ages, uh, before Christ even, way back, like we're talking Egypt back, and even farther in many cases. Religious people aided science. In fact, science was almost exclusively done by people of faith. Now that sounds a lot different than what you may have heard before or hear about today, that science and religion are uh, essentially like oil and water. They cannot and will not ever mix. No matter how hard you try, they will always end up separating in the end. It, It seems that for the majority, the vast majority of human history, in fact, that was weird, in fact, the two have been done by the exact same people. Let me take a more modern example. Isaac Newton. You've heard of him, right? He's the one who pretty much invented calculus. 
uh, all you engineers out there, you know, you're probably like, or you make calculus like, oh no, it's, he's the guy we got to blame to take that class. Yeah, it's him. <laughs> he pretty much figured out how planets orbit stars. He figured out how forces react, how things move in the universe. They're called laws of physics because that's how accurate that they are. He was a man of faith. He didn't even consider himself a scientist. He considered himself a philosopher and a theologian. Yet, he gave us, through his thinkings, through his musings, through his work, some of the most instrumental tools that scientists have used, even to this day. Uh, Galileo. I'm sure you know about him as well. Once again, a man who did not consider himself a scientist. He was a philosopher and a theologian in his own mind, in his own writings. This is what he attested. He's the one who discovered that Jupiter had moons. He discovered craters on the moon. He discovered that the sun is not just a perfect ball sitting in the sky akin to uh, many of the Greek philosophies of the day, the Greek, uh, the Greek thinking of the world of forms. Uh, Plato, I think, is uh, the one who uh, originated that. He's the one who said, no, 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 there are spots on the sun. And not only that, the sun's spinning. And not only that, we're going around the sun. It's the only way to explain things. And this led to some interesting issues with uh, the church at that time who overstepped their boundaries and tried to uh, have him executed for heresy. Uh, We'll get to that later. Uh, But you see a trend here. Some of the most influential people in science throughout all of history were men of faith. Tell us a story. There is a certain type of historian known as a historian of science. So you hear about hist- people study history for wars, you know, study war history. They study uh, sociological history, the advancement of cultures throughout time. Uh, there are people who actually study the history of science. Sounds kind of dull, but they do it. And I'm glad they do it because they were able to uh, tell me some really interesting things based upon their, uh, their research. Most scientific and technological advances prior to the scientific revolution, which was in the, you know, roughly coincided with the Renaissance era, were achieved by organized religious societies like Christians and Islamic people and Jewish people. These organizations spearheaded science, they funded universities. They brought people in and said, we see promise in you. Go learn more about our world. We will help you. And it was not the secular world. It wasn't the ones who did not believe in any God who did this. It was almost exclusively people of faith. In fact, a few historians go so far as to say that during the Dark Ages, if it wasn't for the Christian church in Europe... Uh, according to, uh, it was uh, two or three uh, that I read on the paper, their opinion was that the world would have been plunged into a deeper and darker age than we could ever have imagined. It would have been akin to like the burning of the Library at Alexandria again. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with that, uh, the Library at Alexandria was the place where all of the knowledge of the ancient world was held. It was the place to go to be a scholar, to learn every bit of the knowledge accumulated by, by all of humanity, was collected at the library, and Alexandria was sacked, and it was burned. All of the knowledge lost. 
We have no idea what was there, what was lost, how far we had advanced, what we had learned about the world around us because of this. And many uh, historians believe that that would have happened again if not for the Christian men and women of that time in the Dark Ages going and gathering all of the material they could find, huddling it together, hiding it in their cloisters until time passed and it was able to be put back out. Universities were able to be started again and we were not having to start from square one. It was because of men and women of faith that science survived. Does this sound like the story you've been led to believe? So where did this story you may have come to believe came from? It seems like for most of human history, it's been people of faith who have done the most good for science. Well... Uh, if you look down at the three schools of thought, at this, about this, um, about, uh, when was it? Uh, let me check here. Around the 1800s, a, another school of thought popped up. At first, there were only two. The three schools of thought. The first one was no interaction. That religion and science really didn't talk to each other much. That they described separate things. Science attempted to describe the world around. Religion and faith attempt to describe things above, things that we couldn't experience. This faith, as you mentioned, things that you can't see, things you can't experience, but yet you, you know they're there. Well, how do you explain this philosophical metaphysical stuff? They said, the, I feel there's something more. There's something more. The next one was the school of thought of harmony between the two. That the two could coexist. In fact, they do coexist. You can be a man or woman of faith and do excellent science. In fact, the two are compatible. They, they help each other. They bolster each other up. One covers where the other is lacking. What science cannot explain, religion and faith can come in to fill the gaps and create a more cohesive worldview that makes sense without the other. It, each has a certain puzzle piece that is unique to its field, and it's only when you put the two together that you begin to see what is actually going on. But in the 1800s, a third thought came up. It's known as the conflict thesis. Uh, the first per- you don't need to know this name, but the first person to come up with it was um, John William Drapper. Uh, He was a scientist, like I said, around the 1800s. He's the one who first postulated the conflict theory. Um, This this idea, this school of thought that science and religion are diametrically opposed have nothing to do with each other. In fact, they undermine one another. You cannot have faith in anything and do any science because you will be horribly biased. You will intentionally or unintentionally corrupt the data. You You have no way to separate fact from your faith fiction. This idea is what became very popular among many, uh, many outstanding scientists of, uh, of the time. Uh, you may hear, recognize some of these names. Richard Dawkins, he, is, he was a, a very prominent uh, biologist. Uh, he actually still does work. Uh, Steven Weinberg is another one. Carl Sagan, you may have heard that name. Uh, he was one of the most influential people in getting, uh, in getting others, the public, to uh, understand astronomy the heavens, what's in the sky, what is the universe, what is out there, these amazing, wonderful galaxies and stars orbiting. Uh, One of his most famous quotes is, uh, all of us, we are made of nothing but stardust. 
You know, the, the, the elements that created us were forged in the hearts of stars eons ago, and there was, they were scattered through the heavens as Earth formed the material that was essentially incubated in the hearts of stars are what allow us to be here today. And it was very poetic, um, very, very, uh, very elegant way of presenting things, and he had his own TV show for a very long time, Cosmos. Uh, really good show. And... You know, these, these have had common, commonalities right now. They've been scientists, right? They've adopted this, you know, science and religion. Urgh, they don't need to talk to each other. But many creationists adopted this idea as well. Many people of faith who ascribe to a literal account of... There it goes again. A literal account of, of Genesis. You know, God created everything exactly as it says. They also began to latch on to this idea of, yes, it is an us versus them. Science has no business in our faith and our God and our Bible and our thoughts. Stay away from us. We'll stay away from you. Well, obviously, that's not going to happen, right? I mean, pe- people just like to fight too much. And uh, since that time, it's just been snowballing and snowballing as uh, more and more people have adopted this in their mind, whether they realize it or not. Many, many people uh, believe this is the case. A survey was done uh, not too long ago, in the 2000s, actually, and it determined that the conflict thesis is the most popular opinion in America. If you'd ask the random Joe or Jill on the street, they're going to say, yeah, yeah, science and religion. Yeah, they, they no, you don't, you, you don't want to get a priest and a physicist in the same room together. No, they're, they're, they're going to duke it out. You know, they're, they're not going to be able to get along ever. Uh, that's good and all, but as of the 2000s, most historians of science and the majority of university professors reject the conflict thesis. That includes at the University of Alabama, yes. Most professors, as in over 70% of faculty in the universities of America, America, say the conflict thesis is wrong. The science and religion do not fight each other. You don't hear that on the news, do you? That was so cool when I saw that. And, I, and now that I, I read that, I, I, can, I can actually see that a little bit. Um, in fact, the National Academy of Science, like the National Academy of Science, their official statement on this is the School of Thought of No Interaction. On their webpage, you can go look it up, it says that science and religion do not harm each other. There is no conflict between them. The National Academy of Science says that publicly. So what are your thoughts? I'm wondering. What is it that you came in here believing? Did you think that science and religion were diametrically opposed, that they have to fight? Like, I, I'm afraid to take my science class because I'm a Christian. I'm afraid that I'm going to be, you know, they're, they're going to do something to try to damage my faith or degrade me or destroy me or, or embarrass me. You know, if, if you watch God's Not Dead, no, we get Kyle started on that one. Um, <laughs> if you watch that movie, you know, that's going to happen to me because the university faculty is obviously, all of them are, are hardcore atheists, militant atheists that want to extinguish all Christianity and a religion from the higher learning ed- universities of uh, America. Well, the, the polls say that that's not true. I submit to you that 
Science and faith are two puzzle pieces that you cannot live life without. If you want to make sense of the world around you in the most complete way that you can, humanly can, you need both. In fact, Augustine, let's go with some theologians now. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, you may have heard of those few. They held the view that the scriptures, the Bible, the word of God is so complex, so rich and so deep, so beyond our comprehension, that it only makes sense that you should leave room for future discoveries to shed light on the complexities, the wonders and mysteries of what our God has done. I, that, I thought that was, that was really elegant when, uh, when, I, when I read that. Uh, Stanley, uh, Stanley Jackie, he, is a, uh, professor at, he was a professor at physics at uh, Seton Hall University in New Jersey. He was actually one of, uh, one of the premier professors of physics in his time. He went so far as to say that the worldview of Christianity is a critical factor for the emergence of modern science. If it were not for the Christian worldview being so prevalent in the world, that science as we know it, as we know it would never have come to be. Because what, what does the Christian worldview tell us? The Christian worldview tells us that there is a God who is great. There is a God who is powerful. There is a God who is majestic. And this God created what we live in. He spoke words and the universe came into existence. Some way he holds it and sustains it and makes all the parts run so that it glorifies and honors him and magnifies him. And here we are, inside of this amazing creation. Don't you want to know how it works? How did this amazing God do this? How do galaxies stay with all of the stars spinning around in perfect little thin disks, with these beautiful arms sweeping out, with sparkle with new blue blooming stars emitting their first light? How is it that you can have two galaxies in the vastest of space find each other, crash, and create these gigantic tails of stars flinging into the heavens, stretching across untold, untold distances, creating this beautiful network and web of stars and lights in the sky? How is it that we can have a planet that you can fit thousands and thousands of Earths inside, sitting just outside the asteroid belt. We call it Jupiter. It's sitting in such just the right spot that any asteroids or comets that come in from the outer solar system, instead of coming in to hit us, Jupiter pulls them in with its immense gravity because it's so much larger than every other planet in the solar system and causes it to hit itself. How does God do this? How did he think of this? How do these work? Stanley Jackie said that is this wonder, is this marvel at creation that spurred on the first of the modern scientists to begin earnestly looking at the nuts and bolts of the universe. And I'm very glad for it. So if you look at the last little blank right there, the current opinion, what is the current opinion on this topic? Well, it depends on who you ask. 
That's what goes in the blank. It depends on who you ask, quite literally. <laughs> who do you talk to? So we can talk to a lot of people, but uh, there's, I'm, I'm, I'm in the science field. Numbers speak to me a lot. Um, I don't speak back. It's okay, but they, they talk to me. <laughs> Y'all know what the Nobel Prize is, right? right? It's the top-tier award. Only the greatest of the great scientists are awarded this prize. Of every Nobel Prize winner since the inception of the award, in chemistry, 72.5% of all recipients are Christians. In medicine, 62%. In economics, 54%. Numbers tell a story. So, see what time it is. All right. But what do you do when you come up to someone who has a very militant view against faith, against your faith, or against any faith, for example? What if you find someone who ascribes to uh, what Carl Sagan once said, the universe is all there is, all, all there was, all there is, and all that will ever be? This is called a naturalistic worldview, and you can, I've got a gold blank here for you just to take some notes as we go on. Um, how do you address that? When someone comes to you saying that science is all you need, you have faith that God did, I have faith that science will explain to us how this universe works, because it's all there is. How do you respond? What do you say? How do you defend your faith? Uh, one of the most common things that people say is, uh, in this, in this uh, little section of arguments is that we just don't know enough. The more you understand about the physical world, the more you understand about the laws of nature and the laws of physics and thermodynamics and quantum mechanics, the less you will need a God, the less you will need your faith. Because faith is only for things that you don't understand. When we understand them, you no longer need faith. Right? This is true. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, I have some pretty nerdy things here, so bear with me. I didn't want to just drop a bunch of fact bombs on everybody, but I got a couple of nerdy things here based upon my classes and uh, the research that I've done. Uh, let's talk about some of these things and laws of the universe that we, if we just only understood better, then everything would work out. Uh, there's a funny little thing called thermodynamics. Uh, it is the physics of heat, the physics of energy and work transfer between systems. Uh, every, for example, uh, the first law of thermodynamics is really dull. I think, no, excuse me, the zeroth law of thermodynamics says that heat is energy. It's kind of weird, but the interesting one I want to talk about is the second law of thermodynamics. Notice I said law, okay? Gravity is also a law just to give you some, some, something to key off of here, okay? If I jump, gravity's going to pull me down. Law. The second law of thermodynamics is also known as the law of the increase in entropy. Big fancy words for things don't like to stay together, okay? Things do not like to be in nice, ordered systems. Things don't like to be hot. Things don't like to have an excess of energy stockpiled in one location, the second law of thermodynamics states that the universe wants everything to be the same temperature. 
It wants all the particles to be spread out as evenly as possible so that each particle has the most freedom to move around and do what it wants to without being confined by anything. This is the law of the universe. For example, uh, every time you move or move around or anything like that, a portion of the energy that you're using to move your muscles with is lost via heat. You warm up, you sweat, you get hot, right? That energy is bled away and is useless. In increase in entropy is also the reason why when you rub your hands together, they get hot. That energy, that mechanical energy of me moving my hands together very quickly, is some of it is being wasted and it's being transferred into heat, which is completely useless for doing any work whatsoever. Okay? This is a law of the universe that's been going on since the beginning of the universe. Why are we here? Now think about that. Why are we here? All of you are walking little light bulbs. Your body is using energy. Energy is confined in your body, being stored for later. You are a violation of the second law of thermodynamics right now. You are. The sun is a, is a violation of the second law of thermodynamics. It shouldn't be burning. If the second law of thermodynamics was all there was, right? It's really hot. And in fact, the sun is currently trying to explode. Thanks to gravity, it's not. But right now, the sun is currently trying to blow itself up. That's what's creating the heat and light that makes it so nice and lovely for us. Well, not today, but you know, in the spring and fall times, not in the summer, it's too much. Uh, but in the spring and fall times, that is what makes it so nice and pleasant. The heat and energy and light being released is because the sun's trying to blow itself up in the center. It's like thousands upon thousands upon thousands of nuclear bombs being detonated in the core every second. Yeah, that's what's going on. It's pretty crazy. But the second law of thermodynamics, it says that we shouldn't be here, at least for the time that we've been here. Naturalists will agree or will say that the universe is 13.72 billion years old. That's 13.72 billion years for the second law of thermodynamics to undo everything and to smooth the universe out. Do you think it needs more time than 13.72 billion? I don't know. I don't know. Um, here's another one. Quantum mechanics. Have you really ever looked at quantum... Don't answer that question. But have you really ever looked at quantum mechanics? Quantum mechanics is the, the physics of the very small. When I say very small, I mean electron small. I mean proton small, neutron small, the smallest of the small, quarks even, the things that make up protons and neutrons. When we look at those, we have discovered that a law of the universe is that we can never, ever, ever, ever know exactly what they're doing. <laughs> it's called the uncertainty principle. It's actually got its own name, the uncertainty principle. By definition, by a very, the very nature of the universe we live in, we cannot know exactly where an electron, for example, is. You cannot pin down exactly where it is. Or you cannot know where it's going or what it's doing. So, for example, you can pin down exactly where an electron is. Like, okay, it's orbiting an atom, boom, there it is, got it. But as soon as you pin it down, you've completely ruined the atom. You've ruined the state that it was in. You've messed it up totally. You have no clue what else it was, you don't have no clue what it was going to do. You have no clue what it was doing. You have destroyed the system by simply looking at it. Think about that. You have destroyed the system by looking at it. This is a law. We 
the universe has dictated to us that we will never know everything. We will never know what the atoms that make up our body are doing exactly. We will never know exactly how electrons form covalent bonds with other atoms. We will never know exactly how, why, and where, and when two ions share, elect- share the electron and exactly where that electron is between them so that the two nuclei can stay bonded together. We can never know exactly what's going on. I can't wait for this one. This one's cool. Oh, don't worry. Uh, after this one, we'll get to some a uh, little bit of questions here. But this is my favorite. Uh, my uh, my field of study, as Kyle pointed out, is astrophysics. Uh, that's that's what I've uh, did my undergraduate in. My got my master's in. I'm continuing with the PhD. Uh, have you ever stopped to think about the Earth? Pretty convenient, isn't it? There's a rock floating in space, just the right distance away from the sun, so it doesn't fry us or, or freeze us. There's this awesome little shell of an atmosphere that we can breathe in and breathe out. It keeps us warm. has some nice winds blowing in the summer. It's really nice. There's that Jupiter over there I talked about that seems to suck up all the comets and asteroids that would otherwise smack us. Hmm. What, are this, what is the likelihood of Earth existing? Based upon the laws of the universe and observations, using telescopes, looking at other solar systems, of which we have found around 4,000 other planets, FYI. So there are planets out there. What are the odds of Earth existing? Well, I'm not going to bore you with the details, but suffice it to say there are 322 parameters that are required for a planet like Earth to exist. If any one of those 322 parameters are violated, life would die. Actually, life would never form. I need to to straighten that out. The planet would never exist in such a state that life could evolve even. Let me give you a few. Let's start with a galaxy that we're in. There are multiple galaxies. There's a bunch of galaxies, actually. Spiral galaxies, elliptical galaxies, irregular galaxies, galaxies crashing together, galaxies born, galaxies dying. Um, you kind of need to be in a certain type of galaxy. If you're in an elliptical galaxy, which is a big fuzzy football with stars flying around willy-nilly all over the place, well, that's bad because there are stars flying willy-nilly all over the place. And what happens if a star gets too close to the solar system? That star reaches out, grabs your planet, and flings it into space. Bad day. So elliptical galaxies are not the safest places to have a planet for a very long time. Okay, let's move. So about half, of the, ga- half the galaxies in the universe are spirals. Yeah, roughly. Okay. So that eliminates half of every galaxy in the universe. There are a bunch of galaxies, Sure. But you know what? You need to be around a certain type of star. There are big stars, little stars, tiny stars, dead stars, baby stars. Um, There's a very specific kind of star we need. For example, if the sun were much hotter, not only would it be hotter and you have to be farther away, but it would also emit more ultraviolet X-ray and gamma rays. In case you don't know, those things hurt. Bad. All right. Uh... Ultraviolet light gives you sunburns and gives you skin cancer. It it destroys your cells. X-rays turn your DNA into Swiss cheese. You don't need those things. All right? So your your sun can't be too big. Also, if your sun is too big, it dies too fast. Big stars die quickly. You have to have a small star. But if it's too small a star, you have to get really close to it because it's really cold. But small stars also throw solar flares out like every other day. 
So you're getting really close to a star to stay warm as it's chucking pieces of its surface at you saying, get away from me. Okay, you don't want a piece of a star to hit your planet. FYI. So, okay, let's say that 10% of the stars in the universe are sun-like-ish. Okay. Well, you also need to be in the right place in the galaxy. Too close to the galaxy, uh, too close inside the galaxy, there's too many stars. Once again, star grabbing you, throwing you away. Too far away, well, you run out of stars. Hmm, not good. So you need to be kind of about like a three-fourths of the way out. A little ribbon around a spiral galaxy. Also, you can't be in one of the spiral arms, because if you're in one of the spiral arms, there are blue stars that are being formed constantly. Those blue stars are really hot, emitting a lot of X-rays, Swiss cheese, not good. So you need to be in between the spiral arms, which eliminates some more of the bands. Um, you also need to be in a region that has a lot of white dwarfs that are exploding, because the white dwarfs uh, enrich the environment around you with fluorine and with uh, more of the heavy elements like titanium and nickel and things like that that you need for life. But you can't have too many, because if you have too many, then the dust that would form stars will be blown away from the massive explosions that you can see from the other side of the universe. Um, let's see, I said, I said earlier you have to have also the metal abundances because if you form an area with too much metals, then, well, you have too many metals form and you get an iron planet, or your sun has too much metallicity and it's too red and you have the whole solar flare problem again. But if you have too little, the star will get too big and we get to that whole blue X-ray Swiss cheese thing again. Also, it's too big, it sucks up all the gas and doesn't form any planets or not as many. Um, 322 parameters, okay? Here are... Here are the statistics. I adjusted it a little bit for recent findings also. I gave every star in the universe 100 planets. Every star in the universe, like the sun, I gave them 100 planets to try. The odds of Earth existing, according to the current statistics, are 10 to the negative 274. Whoa, you just used math. That is, that is 10 with 274 zeros behind it. Let me put this into perspective. There are 10 to the 80 atoms in the universe. 80. 274 is what we're looking for. So if every atom in the universe was a solar system, you would need 10 to the 194 universes to get one Earth. Let me put it another way. Whole Powerball lottery thing you may have heard of on the news, right? Your odds of winning the Powerball lottery were roughly um, one in a billion, or ten to the negative nine. Well, these negative, the ten to the negative two hundred seventy-four odds of Earth existing, according to the laws of physics as we know them, and that observation is constraining them. Let's say you won the Powerball lottery, and then the day you won the Powerball lottery, you got struck by lightning. And then every single day after that, for, uh, for uh, two weeks, you won the Powerball lottery and got struck by lightning immediately after you won the Powerball lottery. <laughs> two weeks solid, not missing a day. That's almost the number. That's almost the percentage chance of one Earth existing according to the observations we've taken and the laws of physics to understand them. Earth is cool. So... I came from uh, a family that was really unique. Um, my dad is a physicist. My mom is a teacher. You can imagine how life was for me growing up. You, there was, it was school every day. Oh, my gosh. But it was, it was good. It was good. My family is also a very godly family. I was very blessed to be born into a home that 
God was taken seriously, and God was the sinner. And my father took, took his job as a father seriously. And he imparted upon me the knowledge and wisdom that God had given him for the wonder of the universe, for the majesty and the power and the just sheer awesomeness of our God and what we live in. And I blame him for making me want to go into this. Um, but it's because of what he showed me that made me wonder as to how this happened. How did God do this? I learned that name was physics, so I was like, hey, I'm going to do physics. Oh boy, what did I get into? But uh, that, that's, what I, that's what I did. And I even met opposition on the way. Uh, I, I became a Christian when I was uh, seven years old. I was, a, I, was a, I was a deep thinker when I was seven, but uh, I became a Christian when I was seven years old. And I actually had many people in the church tell me that I should not become a scientist. My pastor once told me that I shouldn't become a scientist. My youth pastor once told me I shouldn't become a scientist. Because these two things don't mix. He told me that science would destroy my faith, that it would shake me, that it would make me question God. I am actually very glad to say that I did not take his advice. Um, I went on and... Contrary to what a few people told me, everything I've learned about this universe has only served to show me how amazing this God is. How incredibly creative. How smart. God is smart, guys. Did you know that? God is smart. Who thought gr gravity is not a force? Gravity is a divot in the curvature of space-time that you flow around, and it's so elegant, so beautiful. It's so beautiful. How this universe works. The more I learn, the more I see, the more I dig, the more questions I have, but the more wonder and amazement grows within me. And not only that, when I look in his scriptures and I see, uh, bearing in mind what was told to us last week about how the scriptures are not a science textbook, but the same God who created all of this, whose, whose artistic hand sets everything into motion and sustains it each and every day, gave us this word directly from him. There are so many things that I found in here that are, that are just amazing. Uh, for example, um, this is, again, going kind of nerdy here, but if you look in, uh, I'll, just, I'll just read this, read this for you here. In Job 36, 27, and 28, um, it says, let me get right here. Uh, this is in Job, one of the oldest book of the Bible, okay? Written way, 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 way back when. Verse 27, for he makes the water drops evaporate. Then distill the rain into its mist, which the clouds pour out and shower abundantly on mankind. That guy sounds a lot to me like the water cycle, which wasn't even postulated until the 1600s. People couldn't explain science, couldn't explain how, where did rain come from? Why is it that rivers continually flooded into the oceans, but the oceans never rose? Where did the water go? Yet we see in scripture here, that God is telling, or uh, that God is telling us that He makes the water rise up. Is another translation will say rise up, and then distill into rain, then pour down in rain into the mist, where clouds pour out and shower abundantly on mankind, saying that the the water comes up. A very clear water goes up. No, water flows down. You're crazy. No, water does go up. It evaporates. Turns. It changes phases and then condenses in the air and rains back down upon the world. It's just like, that's cool. Like, that's, that's, that's pretty cool and pretty specific, too. And then you see all, I don't have time to go through this, all the medicine stuff in Leviticus. Oh, my gosh, if you want some mind-blowing stuff, look at all of the, the medical advances that came out of the book of Leviticus. 
Yes, Leviticus is interesting to read when you look at it from a scientific standpoint. It can get kind of dull. I know, I know. But look at it with a scientific eye. And now you see things, for example, like God telling everyone to wash their hands under running water. The culture that day, everyone else washed their hands in still water because water was viewed as a cleansing agent. But yet God told his people, no, 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 wash your hands under running water. He didn't say why, he just said do it. Well, why do we wash our hands under running water, guys? You know this now, right? The bacteria. There are invisible little bugs that'll make you sick if you eat them. Imagine telling that to the Hebrews back then. That you can't, there's little bitty bugs on your hands that you can't see that'll make you sick. I'm like, no, no, there's not, whatever. You know, yeah, there was. And then uh, things like don't eat these certain animals, these unclean animals. If you look at those, a lot of those are carriers of parasites and rabies and other things that hurt you badly if you eat them. So instead of God saying, well, you, should, you can do it, but prepare it in this way. Make sure you don't eat this piece. Stay away from the spinal column. He's like, no, just, just, just don't eat that. It should be better if you just don't, just, just stay away from it. And that way you won't get tapeworms. That way you won't contract rabies. Okay? Just, just do that. Y'all don't know where rabies is, but just don't do it. Okay? And all of these things about, about how, to, how to treat bandages for uh, clay vessels that, that, cleaned, uh, that, that held uh, bandages that dressed wounds, that the clay vessels need to be broken and then burned. Why do we do that? Well, the same reason hospitals use incinerators, right? All of the bandages, all of the, the blood, the or, or organic, organic stuff that comes from people who are hurt, it can carry diseases, it can fester, and even just sitting out by itself, it can you know, grow bacteria and, and make viruses go have a heyday. You just burn it. The fire will kill all of those things and keep anyone from being infected. They didn't know that. They just took God on faith that he was looking out for them. He was, and he is. All right. Talk, talk, talk. So at this time, I want to ask you guys, what is it that you've wanted to ask someone who is a scientist? And this is a great time, by the way, to use the texty thing, because um, believe it or not, the majority of Christians in America ascribe to what's called theistic evolution. If you're like, well, evolution, biology, I think evolution is right, but I'm a Christian. Can I? 50% of people, roughly 51% of Christians, say they're theistic evolutionists. They believe that God used evolution to create mankind. That's, that's a percentage thing. So, I mean, don't, please don't be afraid to ask. This is, use this time. Uh, to answer some questions you've had. Use a little texty thing, please, if you like, if you just don't want to ask. Yeah. You asking my opinion or my... Uh... The universe appears to be 13.72 billion years old. I can honestly say I don't know. It appears to be. 13.72 billion years old. The Earth appears to be roughly 5 billion years old. I don't know. I honestly don't know. I want to know. I'm, I think about it all the time, but I, I don't know. I really don't know. I wasn't there. Um, you look at Genesis and you see the day. Uh, yom, I think, is the Hebrew word that's used there. Um, it's, it's been used to represent both eras. Of time, for example, uh, used to represent the reign of a king, for example, which was clearly more than a day, but it's also been used to represent days. Um, you hear phrases like evening and morning. That sounds a lot like a 24-hour day, one rotation of the earth, but they still use, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. I really don't know. Could God have done it in six days? Heck yeah. Could God have done it over five billion years? Sure. Which one do you do? I don't know. 
I want to find out, but I, I really don't know. Mm -mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's called gap theory. That's actually the old earth, uh, it's called young earth creationists, old earth creationists um, is sort of the, the divide between the creationist uh, group, the creationist ideology, if you will. Young earth creationists are actually a minority in the group. They're very vocal. Ken Ham, for example, the Bill Nye-Ken Ham debate that many of you have heard about, he's a young earth creationist and his uh, Institute for Creation Research, I want to say, is a young earth creationist group. Um, uh, he, he would argue that, you know, that's not right, but... Uh, for example, there's an organization called Reasons to Believe, read by a, uh, led by Dr. Hugh Ross, who's an astrophysicist. He, as, he ascribes to gap theory. He agrees that period, it says, you know, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens evolved via the mechanisms of physics that he instilled from the creation. And he set it up in just the right way, with just the right initial conditions, that the earth would come together and all these things would work out exactly right. And then he comes on the scene when the earth is ready for life to be specially put on the earth by God. So yeah, what you're describing is called old earth creationism. Yes, that's, a, that's what many, many, many Christians uh, believe that. Mm -hmm. Yes, Jacob Breed. Before, before I ask my question, I want a quick clarification. So on the, on the conflict thesis, mm -hmm. Correct. That, that is exactly right. Um, the, the ones on the religion side will say that science is unnecessary because we have scripture. God has revealed himself specially through, to us in Jesus Christ and in the word he has given us. It's all we need. And the other side of it is that, it's, it's a naturalistic worldview, is that faith is irrelevant because there is nothing else. Science can tell us everything that we need to know, everything that, everything that can be known. Science will tell us. There's no need for anything to fill in the gaps. Mm -hmm. So that idea was that science and religion can both exist, they just don't communicate. Correct, because religion focuses more on up and science focuses more on out. There's no opposition because there's no interaction. Right, one does not necessitate the downfall of the other. One does not undermine the other. Both can exist, but they should be in separate buildings. Kind of thing. It's like studying, um, for example, painting versus... Engineering, you know, they both have they both have value. It's just different value. They would argue, or many would argue, I should say that what you are experiencing is a, it's a, a leftover of the culture of a long time ago when we didn't know much. We're, we're just holding on to things. We're holding on to a crutch, the cane that is faith, when we don't need to anymore. That it's simply something that culture has instilled in us that eventually progress will work out of us. That's the opinion that I've heard. 
I'm not saying it's the only one. That's that's the one I've heard uh, from, for example, Richard Dawkins. That's the best one I've heard. That's the best one. That, that's the most non-emotionally charged one I've heard, if that makes sense. The more emotionally charged it is, the less weight I give it, typically, because, you know, if you can't have a calm discourse, that's not a lot going to happen there. So that, that's the best one I've heard, yes. Yeah. But he wrote a uh, very short, I don't even know what to call it, but it was titled, There is No Natural Religion. And in part of it, he says that um, none can have, basically, you, can, you can't have anything beyond natural or organic thoughts if all you have is natural or organic senses. And he says that desires of, and perceptions of man, if untaught by anything other than natural sense, has to be limited to natural sense. Ah, uh, yeah, I see. See what you, yeah, I see what you're saying. I haven't heard anyone address this, so I'm just kind of pulling from my head here what I've heard from other people, uh, other people and other thoughts trying to form a sentence. The, the, what, what most likely, I would imagine, would be an answer to that would be the human mind is so complex. We have imagination. We can plan. We can dream that this ability that we believe that animals don't have due to our enhanced prefrontal cortex, you know, the planning center of our brain, the logic center, the ability, like I said, to, to look into the future, and the curiosity that we have to learn things that really don't benefit us in surviving that much. Um, they would probably say that it's because of that, that imagination side, that we have developed these things to explain what, and our need to explain something. That also is, would be key that natural innate need to understand in some way, shape, or form, that would be a driving factor culturally for a group to adopt something higher than themselves. That's just my, that's just my guess now. That's my guess. I'm not saying that's how it is. I'm just, that, that's my guess. Oh. <laughs> Because you would have no reference point, you're saying. I see. How would you how would you know of a concept that you've never experienced before? Right? It's like if you've never tasted chocolate, how do you know what chocolate would taste like? How can you dream about what chocolate would be if you've never experienced chocolate? Okay. Right, right. Right. The concept of light would be nothing. Cool. Yeah, okay. All right. Yes. Yes, it's used! Good job, whoever you are. So, uh, they ask, is there any science that 
Clothes of mixed fabrics. Wow. Hmm. Let me think here. I know what you're talking about. Off the top of my head, I cannot. No, I, I can't think of any, of any, of any uh, scientific reason why that would be a thing. Now, again, I'm not claiming that everything in Leviticus is for some scientific, deeper meaning, mind you. Um, but a lot of it is. I'm afraid I, I gotta, I gotta leave you hang on that one. I don't know. That's a synthetic fabric, though, that they wouldn't have access to. So, I, I'm, what they have back then, like wool and linen, maybe. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, don't, I really don't know. That's interesting. That's really interesting, though. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah, it might be like to separate you culturally from others, possibly. I, yeah, I don't know. That might be more. That might be more of a sociological thing than a scientific thing. That is a good question. Good job. Good job. All right. Lay it on me. Uh, <laughs> bring it. Bring it. Yeah. Yeah. How how can they deny if like what he believes as a Christian? How can they deny that? Um if they look at that and that's part yeah, yeah, that was was an integral part of his life. How do they ignore it? Right. Right. Well there's actually another example I have right here. Um let's see, where was his name? Yes, uh, Matthew Murray in the nineteenth century read Psalm eight eight, uh which talks about the fifth fish traveling along the paths of the sea. The fish congregating and moving along paths of the sea. He read that, went over to his local ocean and discovered ocean currents and invented an oceanography. I kid you not. That's how he discovered it. So there's another example right there. Huh? What person? Hear about what person? Oh, what verse? Uh, Psalm 8.8. Uh, it, it makes sense if you back up like two verses just to the full context of what's going on. But it clearly says something about like, there's another translation says rivers of the sea. How do you have a river inside water? What? But the, he discovered that there was this certain channel that the, when you were sitting in it, woo, you go flying away. And when you're outside of it, you just sit there. It's like, whoa, there's a river in the ocean. Ha. He found, guess what? He, just, he pretty much found the Gulf Stream. Not the Gulf Stream, the, uh, the uh, like the, what's it called? Gulf of Mexico. Comes out of the Gulf of Mexico, wraps up, goes to England, which is why it doesn't freeze. Uh, it brings the warmth from the Gulf of Mexico. He's pretty much discovered that. Um, Many people, many people don't know that all of these monuments, to, all these monumental people of science were men of faith. They just really don't know. They haven't been told. They haven't done research. They just accept what people tell them. Or the people who tell them just don't know. If they do, they feel it's inconsequential. It's, it was a flaw. In spite of his faith, he discovered this. Imagine what he could have done if he was not a man of faith, and he spent all of his energy in searching the universe. That's, that's what you run into a lot, is one, an, an, a, a, 
an ignorance, really. Not, not of their own fault many times, it's, it's an ignorance, they're just not told. And uh, if they do know, they just feel it's irrelevant. So it's a, maybe not a satisfying answer, but that's what you run into. What else you got? It was exactly. It was because he read that verse in Psalms that he went over and tried to find it. And he did. Mm-hmm. So there are, there are clues in the Bible that, it, that are there. Uh, there are things that you can look at and be like, hmm, I wonder what that means. For example, in, uh, I believe it's in Isaiah, it talks about how, uh, how God hangs the earth upon nothing. Not on the back of a turtle, hangs the earth upon nothing. What does that even mean? Well, I mean, it means some really, it has some beautiful imagery as you're reading through it, you know, describing the magnificence and the power of God. And the, but when you read, read it today, you're like, oh, yeah, the earth is hanging on. It's just, it's sitting in space. It's not sitting on anything. It's floating in space, orbiting around the sun. It is hanging in nothing. It's just hanging in, in the universe. Kind of cool. Probably not the point of the verse, point of the verse, but I'm like, it's accurate. Cool little tidbits. I'm saying, cool little tidbits you can look into. I'm surprised no one asked me about evolution yet. That's that's usually a hot topic. And somebody, somebody, somebody was like, well, "What? What do you think about that?" Or, yeah. Okay. Uh huh. <laughs> you flatter me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. Okay. Number one, the Big Bang Theory does not say that God doesn't exist, okay? I got to tell this to every single class I teach, okay? Because somebody always asks. All the Big Bang Theory is concerned with is, if I remember this right, 10 to the negative 60-something seconds after the creation event is where the Big Bang Theory picks up. It does not at all ever attempt to describe what created the universe. It simply describes how the universe looks like it is. Okay, it's created, given. Now what happens? That is the Big Bang Theory. It doesn't touch what created, what was the mechanism which sparked the universe into existence. It does not, has no line in the theory which even addresses it. I know this. I I, I can say I've studied that one, okay? Uh, So Big Bang Theory fits actually very well with uh, old, old, old Earth creationism. Uh, many, actually all Old Earth creationists say that the Big Bang Theory is accurate due to the amount of evidence that we found that support the theory. The theory predicted many, 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 many things that we have subsequently found. Like It's really good at telling us why the universe looks like it does. It's really, really good. And um, Old Earth creationists will say, yeah, it's good because it's right. Young Earth creationists uh, will disagree, obviously. Um, but the Big Bang Theory does not disprove God at all. No, no, no uh, word on that subject at all. As for evolution, uh, that's, a, that's one that people will also, they'll, they'll kind of you know, point at it more. But once again, uh, many Christians ascribe to theistic evolution, that God used the evolutionary process and guided it along the way uh, to, to end up where we are now. Okay, so there, there is a melding of that as well that Christians will, you know, will say, yeah, okay, yeah, this theory we see is right. I will say 
that modern evolutionary synthesis is not called the theory of evolution anymore. It's called modern evolutionary synthesis. Yes, yeah, actually a difference. If you say theory of evolution, um, that's showing that you're, you're talking about something outdated. Um, modern evolutionary synthesis is the name of it now. It has been, um, it is not nearly as well tested as the Big Bang Theory, and many aspects of it are untestable with our current understanding. They require time scales that are so long um, to observe this evolutionary process in, in action um, that realistically we humans cannot test some aspects of the theory. Uh, so if you were to put the two on, on the equal playing fields, like on a balance, Big Bang Theory and modern evolutionary synthesis, Big Bang Theory has much more evidence supporting it than modern evolutionary synthesis does, which is why I, I kind of like, yeah, there's, some, there's something here. Like, I personally believe there's something to the Big Bang Theory. It's too good. It's really too good. Modern evolutionary synthesis I have many skepticisms about. No, skepti sorry, many skeptical thoughts about. Uh, maybe that's because I haven't studied biology. I haven't spoken with a biologist that's well-versed in the theory, but from my independent research and books I've read, um, it's, uh, it's, not, it's not as firm as people would want you to believe it is, in my opinion. We can talk more about it more specifically later if you like. The universe is very finite. The universe is very finite. Uh, that's how I was able to give you the estimate, or the, the estimate here of uh, 10 to the 80 atoms in the universe. Uh, what we've been able to do is look at the most distant structures in the universe. And as you look farther away, due to the finite speed of light, I mean, light actually has a speed limit, uh, you are looking back in time. By observing what galaxies were doing far away from us, i.e. way back in time, we're able to constrain the parameters of the early universe to tell how much matter there was, what the density of the universe actually was, how much of the universe was comprised of light, how much of the universe was comprised by matter, how much of it is this dark matter, is this dark energy, things you've heard about. So we have actually been able to constrain the parameters of the, of the entire universe very well, thanks to us being able to see very far away. So yes, the universe is finite. It is not infinite. Indeed, Carl Sagan was, yeah, Carl Sagan was wrong in that. And it's not, it's not really his fault, because the Big Bang Theory was not, I guess, canonized and accepted by the community until much, much later. Uh, it was a theory at that time, but the leading theory at that moment was the steady-state theory. It's actually one that Einstein himself believed was correct. The universe was infinite. It always was, always is, and always will be, as Carl Sagan said. However, when uh, uh, Edwin Hubble, the guy we named the Hubble Space Telescope, when he discovered that the universe was accelerating and expanding outwards... Well, what does that mean? If you reverse time, instead of expanding outwards, what's the universe doing? Shrinking and shrinking. Is it going to shrink forever? Logic dictates it must shrink to a central point. What happens when you... Can you shrink smaller than a point? Hmm, looks like we found a beginning to the universe, guys. Aha! So that right there was the nail in the coffin for the universe being infinite. It is finite. Mm -hmm. Great question. I have heard that a lot. Here's what they say. When Homo sapiens or Homo, Homo erectus, I think Homo erectus, I think was the first one, or one of the first ones actually, when that genetic branch sprout, sprout off, sprout, I can't talk right now, when that genetic branch sprouted off from the tree, uh, there left a void 
of resources that were still available. So if you think about it, monkeys and apes or whatever that you know, is claimed that, that we would evolve from, there is a certain group of resources that they use, certain plants they eat, certain places they live, habitats, natural resources the earth provides. And through genetic mutation, a new species would, via uh, natural selection, right, they would have a new resource that was previously untapped. They have an advantage. So these will go over here and use this new resource. It's very abundant. They're not competing over. But when this group goes over here, this resource doesn't go away. It's still there. So the original ones, there would be a genetic splinter that would not evolve and stay there because there's still resources there. So they would say it's not a complete transformation of one species into another. Instead of it, think of it like a splintering off as different resources become scarce and different resources become abundant. So it's not an all-or-nothing thing. The, it, it makes the idea of a tree, an evolutionary tree, branching out from a single root up and all over the place, sprouting off of one another, make a little bit more sense in that respect. Sure. This is an interesting question. I'll just ask it and kind of see. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. So, why does anything exist? And must God exist? And must He be perfect and holy and just? Ooh, man. Okay. So we're getting out of. We're getting to some theological talk now. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Start off again. Why does anything exist? Great. Okay, first one. Why does anything exist? Science, science. I don't know. Why did the universe have to have to exist? The universe. I mean, science would tell you the universe. I mean, there's nothing that dictates that this universe had to exist. There's nothing that dictates that anything has to exist scientifically. We, we don't know. We don't. We don't know what created the universe, right? Remember, it said Big Bang theory it does not attempt to describe what happened at the inception of the universe. It just says, okay, well, it's here. What's it doing? That's the Big Bang Theory. Um, there's this whole thing with uh, multi-M theory, uh, membrane theory, multiverses. You know, there this hyperspace. Yeah, it's called hyperspace. In between universes uh, that, you know, there's all these 11, not 10 or 11 dimensions. We live in three dimensions, FYI. 10 or 11, yeah, I know that look. That's, that's my head right now. Uh, it doesn't make much sense. So why does, any, does anything exist? I, it doesn't have to, technically. Um, the second part was, must God exist? Now, Let's, take, let's step with what we know. I know we exist. Or I know I exist, at least. I don't know about you guys. You could be figments of my imagination. But I know I exist. I think, therefore, I am. A la Descartes. Um, since I know I exist, I must have come from somewhere. Where did I come from? Science can't tell me. We already discussed that. The explanation that something... And the logical step would be that... Did the universe cause itself? Let's, let's appeal to the law of cause and effect. Does the, the, does the universe cause itself? Does anything cause itself to exist here in the physical world? I ain't seen it yet. No. There, you know, it, it, something, there is a root cause to everything. There's a cause for the sun doing what it does. There's a cause for you existing. There's a cause that the earth is where it's at. You know, we can talk about it in terms of orbital mechanics and whatever. Um... What caused the universe? Great question. By definition, that cause would need to be outside of the universe, right? It would need to be not 
tethered to the thing that is causing, right? Otherwise, you get this infinite loop here of cause and effect. It's a logical fallacy. So if you define God as something that is some entity that is outside of the universe that was instrumental in the cause of the universe, then yeah. I mean, that, that's a valid explanation. Whether it's sound or not, you know, we can talk about, but it's a valid explanation as to the existence of the universe is that God, however you define God, must exist. Yeah. There's a lot of philosophers over time who've used that argument, uh, saying that we exist. How do you explain it? We can't. Something outside the universe had to do it. God. We, we, we appeal that it is God. As I would say, we would appeal that it is the God of the Bible. Right. And what was the, la- the last part? Must. Holy, yes, because holy implies being set apart, being different, completely different from this other thing. By definition, as we said earlier, the cause of this universe must be different, must be separated from the thing that is causing. So yes, I would say by definition, uh, this God would have to be holy in the sense of being set apart and wholly different than the thing that it created. Being good, now that, that's, that's we get into moral arguments there. Um, does it necessitate that God is perfectly good? In my mind, I'd say not quite sure. I would say, however, based upon what we observe in the universe, the thing that has been created, it would necessitate that God is rational, that God is logical, and that God has a mind, can reason. Because how can an irrational, illogical being create something so logical? so perfect and how everything dances and doesn't explode randomly or fly apart or crash. Why isn't the whole universe a black hole yet? You know, that kind of stuff. You know, it, it's such... And Why are there these laws that allow us to predict what's going to happen billions of years into the future and billions of years into the past? These steady laws of the universe that are fundamental rocks with which everything happens. That sounds very planned to me. Very thought, well thought out. Very organized. So... I would appeal that based upon the structure of the universe, we can infer that God is logical and rational. Good? I'm not sure if you can infer that from looking at the universe. You could say, based upon our location in the universe, it's pretty good, as <laughs> we talked about earlier. Um, but I'm not sure. That's more of a moral, moral argument that you'd have to look at other, other things than that, other than data. So, that's my opinion. Hmm? Oh, just? Uh, same vein of thought. Yeah, same vein of thought. That's more of a morality argument that you'd have to get into and talk about more of the characteristics or the implied characteristics of this being as opposed to what you can see directly, like a, a fingerprint or an imprint on the creation. Like, we can tell if a painter was left-handed or not by looking at their work. You know, but we, we can't do that. We can't tell if the painter was a good man or not by looking at the brush strokes kind of thing. It's an analogy, but, you know, take, it's my opinion. <laughs> yeah. All right. What you got? Oh gosh. I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of ruin your day here. I'm so, I feel like I'm gonna, I feel like I'm gonna crush your hopes and dreams here. The lo- no, the laws of physics, the laws of physics, nece- dictate that we will never know. What's at the center of a black hole? Ever. Nope. 
There's this region surround. The black hole is not a thing. The black hole is simply a region of space surrounding a thing. When a large star's core collapses, when it dies, uh, if it's a large enough star, the core will shrink down to an incredibly, incredibly small size. This incredibly compact, dense object has a tremendous gravitational pull. So much so that, you know, like here on Earth, we've got to chuck a rocket into space extremely fast to get it to leave Earth, right? You've got to have a lot of energy there. You've got to be moving so fast to escape an object. The bigger the object, the faster you have to move, right? A black hole has so much gravity, it's so massive, that in order to escape, to leave the object, you have to be going faster than light itself, which means that even light, the fastest thing in the universe, is not fast enough to escape a black hole, which is why we call it black. The black hole is not a thing. The black hole is simply an effect that something inside is causing. What that thing is, we'll never know. Once again, have you looked at astronomy? We'll, by the laws of physics, dictate that we can never know. What happens when you? What happens when a neutron star collapses to a black hole? We can't know. I'm sorry, but we can't. <laughs> we just can't. Yes. As far as Big Bang, No, we cannot. Uh, based upon our current perspective, it looks like everything is moving away from us. But this is simply due to where we're standing. If we were over at the Andromeda Galaxy, everything would be moving away from us there. If we were over at some quasar in the distant universe, everything would be moving away from there. It's this whole three-dimensional thing. People have a hard time thinking in three dimensions, like things evolving in length, width, and height all simultaneously. It's just it's really hard to conceptualize. Um, the best analogy I've been able to come up with is like uh, baking a cake. So let's say you like stuck raisins in cake dough, right? As the cake bakes, the, cake, the whole cake starts expanding and blowing up, right? All those little raisins are like galaxies. They all are just on a ride. They're stuck in the cake and they're just going for a ride. As the cake expands, the raisins move apart. That's what's happening in our universe. The universe cake is expanding and all the galaxy raisins are just along for the ride moving away, which appears to us like everything's flying away from us as the universe expands. So there's no way of determining the singularity? Nope. Actually, we, we can look back far enough to see it. Problem is, there's a huge wall of light that blocks our view. It's called the cosmic microwave background. Let there be light. And there was. Hmm. <laughs> Okay, what you got? What's next? Just a thought. Okay, yeah. You didn't answer a question without even knowing it because someone asked, what the heck are black holes? Yes. I'll reiterate just to make sure I get it clearly. A black hole is the corpse of a massive star. When I say massive, at least five times bigger than our sun, which has run out of fuel in its core. The fusion process generating energy has stopped, and the core abruptly and suddenly collapses under the influence of gravity, turning into a white dwarf, shrinking even farther into a neutron star, shrinking even farther into a question mark, and creating a black hole region of space. Okay. <laughs> okay. So um, I, I, we need, yeah, we, we need to go and close. Like, like, like Kyle said, though, I am, I'm here. I'm here. We, my wife and I, we go to Alberta. 
So if there's something that you still want, if something's interested you about this, if there's something that you're thinking about that said, I've always wanted to know this, or I've, I've, I didn't even know I had this question, please find me, uh, send me a message on Facebook. Say like, hey, how can I want to go eat lunch or sometime? Just let me know. Um, they can find, you can find me in Galilee Hall, room 309. Come visit me, please, after one o'clock. No one comes to Galilee because who would want to? I know you did because you had to. You know you had to. All right. But I, I, want, I want to thank you all. I want to thank you all so much for your patience. Thank you for your, uh, thank you for your attention also as, as, I, as I talk a little bit about the things that I've learned, the things that I've discovered, and the things that God has impressed upon me as to what this universe is, this beautiful creation that he's made, and how important it is for us to learn about it. And... Um, it may sound a little funny here, but remember I said that science is us looking out. Religion and faith is us looking up. But if you think about it, the up made the out. So if we look at the out, it can help us understand the up. And if we look at the up, it will help us understand what was going on when he made the out. All right. Thank you so much.